Thanks, Ben. Thank you, guys. It's, it's actually really, really great to be back with you. And uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, uh, like Ben said, my name is Pastor Tony. And as a way of introduction to you, and for those of you who do know me, as a way of uh, kind of catching up to speed with what's been going on in my life, I have um, two little boys and one wife. It's a good ratio. And uh, my, my youngest, his name is Leland. He's now two years old. And some of you might remember all that. He's two years old now. And he, uh, his, his big things, he loves Batman and he loves airplanes, and so we do a lot of things with that. And then my oldest son, Nehemiah, is four now, four years old. And uh, his thing, the thing he's into, is he likes to fight me. So he likes to fight, fight me, not wrestle. He wants to fight. And so when I come home, I'm, I'm pretty much greeted every day when I come home by my son, my four-year-old, usually with his shirt off, and he usually points at me, and he says, I want to fight you. <laughs> and I look at him, and I say, bring it, little man. And then he says take off your glasses. And I say, good point. And I take my glass off and we, we rumble. So my kids are doing great and uh, they're getting bigger. And my wife is awesome. She's as beautiful as ever. And we've been at the Medina East Campus now for about a year. And some of you might remember getting a chance to, to pray and, uh, and send off the Medina East Campus. And it's awesome what God's been doing over there. And so I'm, I'm privileged to bring greetings to you from the Medina East Campus. They were so excited when they heard I was coming to Bath. And so I send my greetings from them. It is awesome to see uh, what God is doing at Grace Church at large. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited for you that I'm here, uh, because honestly, Pastor Jeff is a phenomenal teacher. Uh, he's a great leader, but the dude's ugly. So uh, if anything, maybe I can be some eye candy for you today, and that's fine. So, um, but anyway, we're, we're in a series right now we're calling Reset, and maybe you guys have been here for this for the past few weeks. Basically, what we've been talking about in this series is we've been talking about how things in life sort of have a natural proclivity uh, to drifting away from their original meaning and intent. And we've been saying that happens with a lot of things in life. Things just have a natural tendency to drift. But we said that's especially true as it relates to Christianity. Um, so much so that in our culture today, that if you, if you ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, the presentation of Christianity is so confused in our culture, and it can mean so many different things that it practically means nothing at all, right? So you know this as well as I do. If someone were to randomly come up to you on the street and ask you, are you a Christian, which I don't know why anyone would do that, but if they did, if they said, are you a Christian, my guess is that if you're anything like me, you wouldn't be real comfortable with simply giving a yes or no answer to that question, because it can mean so many different things. You'd want to qualify it, right? And so if someone asked me that question, are you a Christian, I'd want to say, well, what do you mean when you say, are you a Christian? Or maybe for you, if someone asked you that question, you would say, well, well yes, I am a Christian, but... I'm not like this other group of people that call themselves Christians. Or, or maybe you'd say, I was raised that way, and I have a certain belief system, I have a certain ethical system that I adhere to that's sort of Christian in nature. Maybe you would say, I vote a certain way, and that's what makes me a Christian. Or you would say, I used to be a Christian, or I'm trying to be a Christian. And there's so many different responses to that question. And the reason, again, is because it's, it's drifted. It's become so ambiguous that it practically means nothing at all. So we've been doing this series, as we've been saying, well, we need to reset. We need to go back, and we need to talk about what does it actually mean to identify yourself with Jesus? What does it really mean to be a Christian? And, uh, and so if you guys are with us a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff was teaching, and he, and he noticed something real fascinating. He said, if you, if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, and you go back to the Bible, and you study the term Christian, you find something really fascinating in the Bible, and here's what you find. You find that the term Christian, that term itself, is only used three times in the entire Bible. And the three times that the term Christian is used, it's used kind of in a derogatory sense. 
And so in the three instances we see it, it's like a group of outsiders looking at those who identify themselves with Jesus and criticizing them and calling them Christians. Right? It'd, be like, it'd be like calling somebody like a cheesehead if they were from Wisconsin or calling somebody a hillbilly. Right? It's like a derogatory way of identifying somebody. And so that's the way Christian was used. And so because the term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, and because when it is used, it's primarily used in a derogatory sense, we said that really there is no clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's a vague term. But we did say, you might remember this, we said there is a term, though. There is a term that's used more than any other in the New Testament to talk about those who do identify themselves with Jesus. We said that this is a term that Jesus Christ himself used to speak of those who identified themselves with him. We said this is a term that those who identified themselves with Jesus used about themselves. This is a term that was used 294 times in the New Testament. And you guys might remember it was this term. It was the term disciple. And so we said, really, when you begin to understand discipleship, it clarifies a lot. Because the term disciple is a lot more clear than the term Christian. But we also said, not only is it a lot more clear, it's actually a lot more frightening. Here's what I mean by that. The term disciple, simply put, if you go back to the original language, all it really means is this. It means to to, uh, be a student, to be a learner, or discipleship is basically this. It means to follow somebody. So I want you to catch this. Discipleship is not primarily concerned with what you believe or how you behave, which tends to be the way most people define Christianity, right? If you ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian? They'll say, well, it means you believe this and you behave this way. It's what you believe and it's how you behave. It's what you believe and it's how you behave. And it's what you believe and it's how you behave. But discipleship is not primarily concerned with what you believe or how you behave. It's primarily concerned with who you follow. So discipleship is not about how or what, it's about who are you following Jesus. And that's a lot more frightening. It's a lot more clear, but it's a lot more frightening because you know this as well as I do, that it's a very different thing to ask someone, are you a Christian, than to ask them, do you follow Jesus? Do you follow the man? And my guess is that maybe even for some of you today, if I were to ask you that question, you might give me two entirely different responses that question. And so this is what we've been doing in the series. We're saying, let's reset, let's go back, and let's talk about what it truly means to be a disciple of Christ. And um, some of you guys might know a lot of this series is based off of Pastor Jeff's new book called Reset. And by the way, if you haven't picked up that book, I'd strongly encourage you to pick it up. It is fantastic. I had the privilege of reading it before it was published and kind of being part of that process. And man, it is just awesome. Uh, some of the thoughts that are in there are so liberating, so clearly outlined. I encourage you to grab it. I believe you can get it in the bookstore. I challenge you to do that. But what we're doing is we're trying to paint the picture of what discipleship is really about. What does it really mean to follow the man, follow Jesus? Um, It's my guess, it's kind of my assumption, um, that everyone in this room has probably had this experience before. And if you haven't had this experience, I can pretty much promise you that you will at some point in your life. It's pretty common to the human situation. But have you ever had this happen? Have you ever had it when you have a relationship And it could be any type of relationship where it was on one level, the friendship or the relationship or whatever it was, was on one level, but you desired it to go sort of a level deeper. Do you ever have that? You kind of wanted it to go a level deeper, but the person that you were trying to to initiate that relationship wasn't willing to go there. If you guys have ever had that experience, so so for example, like if you remember back when you were in high school or when you were in college or maybe you were in high school or you're in college, remember when you were falling for that person, um, but they weren't falling for you? Remember that? And, and you would try to initiate, you desired for the relationship to go deeper, and that person was respectful, and they were polite, and it was casual, but they were never willing to let things get to a level deeper. And there's nothing worse than a failed DTR. 
You guys know what a DTR is? Remember that? Define the relationship. It's by far the most frightening conversation a man can ever have is the DTR, right? And if you guys have had this conversation, you know what I'm talking about. I remember my DTR, the DTR I had with my wife now, Jessica, when we first started dating. I remember it so clearly because I was so petrified to have the conversation. So, so my wife and I, we met here. We actually met at Grace Church. And, uh, and when we met, I remember when I met her, I thought, there's no way this girl would ever go for me. She is so far out of my league. And so we became friends, and we started hanging out. And after a while, I was surprised because it seemed like she was digging on me. And I was like, well, that's awesome because she totally stirs my Kool-Aid. And, uh, and so I was like, I like this girl. This is incredible. And so I saw the opportunity, and I realized this doesn't come around very often. I got to capitalize on this. I need to have the DTR, the defining relationship. And so I was so scared. I remember, I remember exactly what happened when I had the DTR because it was on the phone. We had the DTR on the phone, not preferable. But I had it on the phone. I remember pacing outside. I lived in an apartment complex at the time. I remember pacing outside in the parking lot. And we were talking, and I was trying to muster up the courage to have the conversation. So we're, we're making small talk, talking about the weather, talking about all kinds of little petty things, all because I'm just trying to get ready to have the DTR. And so finally, after like 10 minutes of small talk, I'm like, I just got to do it, man. I just, gotta, I just have to do it. I got to have the DTR. And so I just came out, and I'm sure I sounded like a moron because I was so nervous. You know, I was sweating, and I'm sure my voice was quivering. And so I was like, okay, so we've been hanging out for a while and things and stuff <laughs> and whatnot. And, and I'm, pr I'm pretty sure it probably sounded just like that. And I was like, and finally I'm just like, so look, I like you, all right? Do you like me? You know, <laughs> circle yes or no. And uh, it's kind of like that. And you, know, you guys know what it's like. If you guys have done this, this is so terrible. I mean, you put yourself out there, right? So I put myself on the line, and uh, you can only imagine how relieved I was when I heard my wife say, well, I like you too. And then we had the, conver the conversation turned, and then we became official. We became Facebook official. That was a big deal. And then I remember hanging up the phone. After I hung up the phone, I was just like, nailed it. <laughs> awesome. I went up to my roommates. They were all waiting for me. They knew I was, they knew I was having the conversation. They were like, how did it go? I was like, oh, incredible. Like, I was a smooth-talking Casanova. She was like, I love you. I'm like, I know. And that's not how it went at all. It was actually the very opposite of that. But anyway, there, there's nothing worse than a failed DTR. And I may or may not have had that experience in my life, but, but there's something about when you go out and you're like, look, I, 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 the relationship's here, and it's casual, and it's friendly, and it's respectful, but I want it to go here. There's nothing worse when the other person is like, oh, that's nice. Uh, it's not you, it's me. You're a nice guy. And there's nothing worse than that, right, when that happens. And so I think all of us have had that experience. If you haven't had it in the romantic, uh, the, the sphere of romantic relationships, maybe you've had it uh, in your parenting. And so for some of you, uh, for example, maybe you have a teenage son or daughter, and, uh, and there's something about that age. And, and, and if you were honest with me, you would tell me that, that you desire your relationship with them to be more than simply parent-child. You do. You, you, you kind of want it to go a little deeper. You want them to be able to feel free to express their heart to you, to express their fears to you, to express their excitement to you, to even express their failures to you. You, you desire for the relationship to go a level deeper. But if you are honest with me, as much as you try to initiate and as many opportunities as you try to create to make that happen, you feel like you get stiff-armed. And it's not that it's hostile. It's not that they're negative. It's just that sometimes they are. But, but, but sometimes it's just that they're not willing to go there. And they're polite, and it's respectful, but they're just not willing to go to that level. For maybe for some of you, it's, it's the opposite. Maybe it's with your parents. 
Maybe you desire to have that level of relationship with your mom or your dad, but you feel like every time you initiate, every time you try to engage in that level, that, that as much as you initiate, there's no reciprocation. And it's nice, and it's cordial, and it's respectful, but it's just not going to the level that you hope it would go to. Or maybe for some of us, let's just be honest, maybe it's in our marriage. Right? Maybe when you first got married to that person, there was this passion, there was this excitement, there was this flair. There was this deep desire for intimacy. And I, I don't just mean sexual intimacy. I mean knowing the other person's heart and them knowing you. And that was there and that was vibrant. But somewhere along the line, you drifted from that. And now your relationship, it's not hostile. It's not negative. None of those things. In fact, it's very polite. It's very cordial. It's very respectful. You know each other's roles. You're very good roommates. But as much as you try to get the relationship to go a level deeper, as much as you desire for that to happen, it seems like there's something that's keeping that from happening. So like I said, it's my guess that all of us have probably had that experience. If you haven't, you will. Because it's just kind of the way that life works sometimes. But the reason I tell you that is because I want you to take that emotion. Like I said, I think most of us have had that before. I want you to take that emotion for a minute, and I want you to capture that. And the reason I want you to do that is because there's something I want you to understand about the Bible. When you get to the Bible, one of the pictures that the Bible paints from us, in fact, probably the strongest picture the Bible paints from us from Genesis to Revelation, is that God is a God who is perpetually initiating and inviting us into a relationship that's much deeper than we tend to be satisfied with. And so we see God going to every length to reach out, to search out, to initiate and to, and, to, and to invite us into a relationship. But as much as we see that picture in the Bible of God reaching out all throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we also see humanity who's perpetually stiff-arming God and saying, no thanks. I'll settle for a respectful, polite, cordial, casual relationship. But I'm not willing to go a level deeper, the level that you hope for us to go in. And this is the picture the Bible gives us from front to back. And the truth of the matter is this is that you and I, the Bible tells us this, that we were created to be in a relationship with God that was to be marked by intimacy. It's the way God designed us. So when you go back to the book of Genesis, for example, in Genesis chapter one and two, what do we see? We see this. We see that God creates man and woman. He creates them, and then they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're created to have an intimate relationship with God, and they're able to speak with God in an uninhibited way, right? There's no religion, there's no sacrificial system. There's no temple. There's none of that stuff. There's no priesthood. None of those things exist. It's just God and man and woman, and they interact with God face-to-face -face like a friend would interact with a friend. And, and they were designed for this level of intimacy, and the Bible says that they shared that. But somewhere along the line, something went wrong. Something went wrong. And that's what I want to draw your attention to today. I want you to, to take your Bibles with me and invite you to go to, uh, to Genesis chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, flip with me to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis is by far the easiest book of the Bible to find. It's the first book. So Genesis chapter 3 is found on page 2. Pretty easy. So grab your Bibles, go to page 2, Genesis 3, and uh, we'll look at this together. And let me just kind of set it up a little bit. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at what happened, how sin entered the world, how that relationship that we were created to have with God was severed and distanced. Um, but what I want you to see in Genesis chapter 3 is that this is not just a story of what happened. This is also a story of what happens. What I mean by that is this, is that we're not just going to look at a historical account of how sin entered the world. We're going to look at a pattern that I believe happens over and over again, even in our own lives, as we try to connect with God. So Genesis chapter 3, let me show you what I'm talking about. 
Let's start in verse 1. So it starts off, it says, Now the serpent, that's Satan, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. All right, now let me just hit pause there and kind of let us know what's going on again. So basically, God created Adam and Eve. They were created for an intimate, uninhibited relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, and they had that experience in Genesis 1 and 2. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan come. Satan comes to Eve, and he tries to sow seeds of suspicion in her thinking about God. So he comes up to her, and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Which, by the way, if you guys are familiar with Genesis chapter 2, you know that's not what God said. God said you can't eat from one tree. But Satan is sowing seeds of suspicion, so he exaggerates. He says, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? And so Eve responds, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, again, some of you know this. What Eve is saying is halfway true. It's halfway true. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you will see that God said you cannot eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. But she adds something, if you notice. She says, and we can't even touch it. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God never said that. God never said that. That was something that she added herself in there. And so then you get to verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. Now let me help add some clarification to this passage and I'm going to borrow some thoughts from a guy named Carl Barth. Carl Barth was a church theologian in the early 1900s and he said something real, real, real fascinating about this passage. Carl Barth said this. He said that in order for the original sin to take place, in order for sin to occur, there needed to be what he called a primordial climate. This is what he means. That in order for the original sin to happen, there had to be a setting in which it could take place. And that's what the enemy, that's what Satan was creating. He was creating a certain setting in which the sin could occur. And what Karl Barth calls that setting, or he calls that climate, he calls it religion. So in other words, let me, let me phrase it this way. Karl Barth would say, and I think this is really fascinating, that right here in this passage in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first example of religion. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, let me show you. This is the first time, I don't know if you noticed this, this is the first time in human history, the first time ever, where you have two individuals talking about God as if God was not there. You notice this? So Satan comes up to Eve, and what does he do? He says, hey, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And you know what Eve should have done, right? Eve should have said, I don't know, serpent. Why don't we ask him ourselves? Because he's right here. And there's a relationship and an intimacy that was available to Eve, an uninhibited relationship that she had with God, but instead she didn't. She was lured in. And what, what the enemy did, what Satan did, was he successfully distracted her from a relationship that was available to her to now conceptualizing about God, right? And so Karl Barth says, this is the first theological debate. This is the first seminary. This is the first time you have two people talking about God, but not talking to God, speculating about the character of God, conceptualizing about what God is like, as if God was not right there with them. 
This is the first picture we have of religion. So Karl Barth says this is the first seminary. He also says this is the first sermon, right? This is what God is like, and this is what God says. That's what a sermon is, someone speaking on behalf of God. And so they says this is the first sermon. And like most sermons, this one goes a little bit too long, right? Because she says, God said we can't eat from that tree. And then she adds for the big climactic finish, and we can't even touch it. God never said that. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. What Satan has done here, what he has successfully done, is he's created the perfect setting for the sin to happen. He has successfully deceived Eve from taking her eyes off of a relationship that was available to her to now conceptualizing about God in an impersonal way. Things have gone from an intimate knowledge and a friendship with God to now Eve feeling as if she needed to define and defend God on her own terms. This is the first time we see individuality. A person saying, I need to define God for myself and I need to defend him on my own. And denying the relationship that was available to her. And what happens? Well, the Bible says that it's through this setting that she's deceived and it works. And it works. Because when she looks at the tree this time, now it's enticing to her. She takes from the apple, she eats it. The Bible says she gives it right to her husband, who, by the way, Adam was standing right next to her the whole time. You're like, what was that guy doing this whole time? I don't know, probably playing with his iPhone or something, right? So she's like, here you go. And he's like, eh, eh, you know, and sin then enters the world for the first time. And the relationship between God and man is broken. The intimacy that we are created to be with with God is broken. And the Bible says that everything terrible enters the world. Sin, death, disease. I oftentimes say Nickelback formed a band during that time. (laughs) Everything unimaginable, you know, the Steelers, all that happened right in that time frame. And, and, and listen, I want you to catch this. After that break happened, after that relational break happened, the Bible paints a picture for us that from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation, it explains God as a God who is searching, a God who is constantly searching. So in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hide, and God says, where are you? Where did you go? Where did you go? And then all throughout the New Testament, the Bible tells us God is searching. God is searching. You get in the New Testament, Jesus comes, and he's searching, and he's searching. And what is he searching for? Is it that God has lost us, that he doesn't know where we are? No, it's that God is always searching for that same quality of relationship that we had back in the garden. He's always looking to bring us back to the intimacy that we're created for. And all throughout the Bible, we see this picture that God is initiating, that God is is instituting, he's reaching out and inviting us into a relationship with him, but we perpetually stiff-arm him and say, thanks, but no thanks. And we'll settle for a casual, respectful, polite relationship, but we're not willing to let it go a level deeper. Now listen, I, I think for some of you, maybe as we're talking about this, for some of you, this is a very new perception of God. And depending on the religious system you were raised in, or depending on even the way you view God, this might be new information to you. But listen, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, it is strikingly clear about this, that your heavenly Father, and there's a reason he wants us to call him heavenly Father, that your heavenly Father does not simply want a relationship with you that is marked by respect. He doesn't simply want a relationship with you that's casual or polite, But your heavenly father desires a relationship with you that's marked by intimacy. It's what God desires for you. It's fascinating um, in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Revelation. It's full of all kinds of neat stuff. It's It's a strange book. It's got a lot of imagery in it. 
If you've ever read it, you know it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. If you've never read the Bible, I wouldn't recommend starting in the book of Revelation, but it's a good book. And in the beginning of, of the book of Revelation, we see um, John, one of the disciples of Jesus, and he's writing on behalf of Jesus to these different churches, very specific churches in the area. And he writes to a church in a place called Laodicea. And I want to show you this. I'm just going to put it up on the PowerPoint so you can see this. But I want you to see what Jesus says to this church in Laodicea. So, so to give you some context, Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, the city of Laodicea was known for a few things. Uh, they were known for being very affluent. Uh, they were very successful, very wealthy. Uh, they were known for their medical advancements and their education. So they were, they were advanced. They were established. They were prosperous as a city, this, this place in Laodicea. And so Jesus writes to the church in Laodicea, and this is what he says. I want you to catch this. He says this. He says, I know your deeds. So I know what you're doing. He says that you're neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish you were cold or hot. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. He's saying, I know that you're not hot, meaning you're not passionately excited about, about having a deeper relationship with me. I know you're not hot. He's like, and you're not cold. Like, you're not anti-God. You don't, like, hate God. But he's like, you're kind of in the middle. I wish you were either one or the other. And then he says this next part in verse 16. He says, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, which you're like, that's gross. What Jesus is doing here is he's actually drawing, uh, he's drawing a metaphor that would have, been, would have been very, very familiar to the Laodiceans. And, and the reason is this. In Laodicea, they were known for a lot of things, but there was one downfall in Laodicea, and it was this. They had no water source of their own. And so in order for them to get water into their city, they built this very complicated aqueduct system that would pull water from two different sources. One was a hot spring, one was a cold spring. And it would pipe water in from about six miles away on either side. And after making the six-mile journey in those aqueducts, by the time the water, either from the hot spring or the cold spring, got to the city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And so everyone was like, Laodicea is awesome, but their water is terrible. You guys know how this works, right? Hot coffee, awesome. Iced coffee, fantastic. Lukewarm coffee, bleh, right? And so Jesus is like, you're neither hot nor cold. And in other words, he's saying, you're not, you're not passionately excited about having a relationship with me. You're not anti-God. He said, you're respectful. You're casual. You're polite. And he says, and I can't tolerate it. I can't tolerate it. And then he goes on in verse 17. He says, because you say, I am rich, and you've become wealthy, and you have need of nothing, you do not know that you're wretched and miserable poor, blind, and naked. Here's what he's saying. He's saying because you're experiencing prosperity, because you're rich, because your kids are well-educated, because you guys are prosperous as a nation, you think that means that we're okay. He said, but you don't understand that spiritually you're blind and you're empty and you're cold. And then he gives a couple other metaphors, but I want you to catch this. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus goes on to say something that is so powerful. And I want you to catch this. This is so important. He says this. He says, behold, behold. Some of you have different translations. It says, here I am. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. Just like Eve and Satan were having the conversation as if God was not there. God's like, I'm right here. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door? It's interesting. I want you to imagine this. He stands at the door of the church that bears his name. 
and there's a bunch of religious people inside doing a bunch of religious things. But get this picture. Jesus is on the outside of his own church, and he's knocking. He's like, you guys are doing your thing. You're doing your, and I'm right here. I'm on the outside. I'm right here. He says, I stand at the door, and I knock. And then he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And you see, all of a sudden, we're introduced to a very fascinating concept about God. And this is so important, that God, in all of his power, God, in all of his power, God could do anything he wants. God could make you fear him if he wanted to. God could take everything from you if he wanted to. God could take your very, very life if he wanted to. But the Bible shows us that God, in all of his power, that he can do anything he wants, that he leverages all of his power to destroy every barrier that keeps us from having a relationship with him. And God, in all of his power, can do all things, but there is one thing that God will never do, one thing God will never do, and it's this. God will never make you love him. He won't. God will go to every length to destroy every barrier, and he did, He sent his son on the cross to die for us. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He used his power to do that. And God, in all of his power, he can do anything he wants. But there's one thing that God will never do, and that's this. God will never make you love him. Because your heavenly father understands this, that more than he wants to come into your life, he wants wants you to invite him into your life. God understands something about intimacy. We're created in his image. And God knows that to have a relationship that's truly intimate is something you cannot force. It has to be reciprocated, right? We're not created to be like Autobots. Or like, you guys remember the Stepford Wives, that, that book or that movie about, about those men that would create these robot wives and they would make them love them? That's not God. God didn't create us to make us and force us to have an intimate relationship with us. But God, in all of his power, has done everything he can. He's destroyed every barrier. He's created every opportunity. But there's one thing God won't do, and that's this. He will not make you love him. He won't. And so he stands outside of the door of your religion. He stands outside of the door of your concepts of God. He stands outside of the door of your casual, respectful relationship. And he knocks. He says, the real Jesus is here, and I want you to come in. And in all of his power, he's done everything that he possibly can, but there's one thing he won't do. He won't make you love him. Listen, I, I, under, I understand this. Being a father, I understand this. And I'm sure you guys who are parents, you understand this. Because the truth is, like, I, I love my kid. I love my boys. I talk about them all the time, and I can't, I'm sure people get tired of hearing about it, but I can't stop. I love them. They're awesome. And, uh, and right now, one of my major prayers for my kids, they're young, so it's, they're in a different stage of life right now, and it's really fun. But one of my prayers is that as they grow older, that God would allow us to have a level of relationship that's beyond father and son. That, they would, that, that God would let us, you know, that they would be able to talk to me about the things they're concerned about, about their fears, about their successes, even about their failures. And even though I might not know the right thing to say or have the right advice, I long to have that type of relationship with my kids. And I got to tell you right now, it's just a blast. It's a blast. My kids are young, so it is just like all out fun. It's energy all the time. It's exhausting, but it's energy all the time. And you know what happens to me? I notice this happens to me. Whenever I come home from work, I get in the car and I start to drive home from the office. You know what happens when I start thinking about the fact that I get to see my kids? I'm not even kidding. You know what happens to me? I start to ache 
I'm like, man, I cannot wait to see them. I'm like, I get to go home. I get to be with my kids. This is going to be so awesome. And then after I spend a couple hours with them, I want to leave again. But, but on the way home, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to be with them. And then when I get home, it's like right now they're young, so it's like the welcome wagon. You know, it is just like a party. I walk in the door, they hear the garage door open, and I walk in, and it's like, Dad's home! You know, and there's music, and there's pyrotechnics, and my kids come, and they come to the door, and my, my, my youngest, Leland, too, is doing the worm. He's like, yeah, you know? And it's awesome when I come home. And, and then we wrestle, and Liam's like, I want to fight you, and then we get on, and we, you know, we, this whole thing happens. And as a father, I'll tell you this, I love it. I love it. You know why I love it so much? I love it because on my way home, I'm aching to see them. And then when I open the door, they reciprocate that emotion. And they long to see me too. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love right now, um, whenever we drive separately to different places, my boys, this makes my wife mad. They always want to ride with me. They always want to go in the dad mobile. That's what they call it. And in the dad mobile, we listen to, to the hamster dance as loud as we can. And they play the air drums, and we eat candy, and it's the dad mobile. And, and I love it. I love it. I love it because I long to be with them, and whenever I see them, they long to be with me. And there's a level of, of, of love and intimacy I have with them. I love that. So, but I understand this as a dad, and, and anyone who's a parent understands this too. I can leverage every opportunity I have. I can create every circumstance. I can take all of my resources and I can create every opportunity possible to make that relationship a possibility. But there is one thing I cannot do. I cannot make them love me. I cannot make them reciprocate that emotion. And I love coming home because I know that they want to be with me. But you know how much it would break my heart if I came home and they wanted nothing to do with me? And that would, that would, that would absolutely wreck me. Because I love being with them, and I love the level of relationship we can have. Now listen to me. If you hear nothing else I say today, you've got to hear this one thing. All right? I am a sinful person, and I am an imperfect dad. How much more do you think that your heavenly Father aches to be with you? Man, your heavenly Father, he longs to be with you. He aches like I ache to see my kids, to have that level of relationship with you. He loves you. And it's not because he's some needy, desperate God. It's because he's your heavenly father. And he longs to be with you in that level. He aches to have this relationship. But so often, we settle for a relationship that's respectful, that's casual, that's polite, but not that's marked by intimacy. Like our Heavenly Father invites us in. See, the reason that our Heavenly Father stands outside of the door and knocks is because more than he wants to come in, he wants to be invited in. He's done everything, everything, everything. He's leveraged all of his power. He's leveraged all of his resources. That's what the story of the Bible is. It's God making every effort imaginable, even to the point of dying on the cross for our sins, defeating death and defeating sin. He's done everything, but there's one thing he won't do. He won't make you love him. He won't do it. Because true intimacy is something that's reciprocated. And so in the meantime, he stands outside of the door of your heart. He stands outside of the door of your religion. He stands outside of the door of your concepts about God, your musings, 
He stands outside of your respectful, casual relationship. And he knocks. He says, here I am. And then I want you to notice this next part. I love this next part. It's so great. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, if you want to put the verses back on the screen, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. He says, if anyone hears my voice, I love this, and opens the door, watch this next part. He says, I'm going to come in with him. He's like, and I'm going to dine with him and he with me. He says, if anyone lets me in the door, he says, then guess what? We're going to eat together. He's like, we're going to get some chicken wings. It's going to be awesome. You're like, what's this all about? Why, why food? Is Jesus just a foodie? Is that what's going on here? And I'll tell you why. Back in this culture, some of you might know this, back in the ancient culture, eating with someone was the truest sign of intimacy. It was, it was much more than sharing a meal. It was a way of identifying yourself with others. And so you might remember the Pharisees would always get so mad at Jesus because he would share meals with the sinners and tax collectors. And so they're like, why are you identifying yourself with those guys? And so Jesus says, I stand outside of the door of your heart. I stand outside of your religion. I stand outside and I knock. He says, and if you would let me in, if you would reciprocate, if you would be willing to let things go a level deeper, he's like, then I come in and we'll eat and we'll have that quality of relationship that I've designed for us to have. This is what your heavenly father wants. This is the true heart of God. Knowing the true heart of God is understanding the length that he went to to help initiate a relationship that he's invited us into. That's what God wants. Let me, just, let me just ask you one question today, and then we'll close out. Just one question. Here's my question to you. How would you characterize your relationship with God? If I was to ask you, what's your relationship with God? Like, how would you answer that question? For some of you, if you were honest, you would tell me, my relationship with God, if I was to characterize it, I would tell you it's non-existent. That's my relationship. I don't have one. It's just not there. And for some of you, maybe, you know, maybe it's your first time here. Maybe you got invited by a friend or you got dragged out here by your parents or by a neighbor or something like that or by a boyfriend or girlfriend. And if you're honest, you're like, I'm actually not real sure. I'm not sure what I believe about God. I'm not sure what I think. I'm kind of investigating Jesus. I'm not sure what I believe. And if, that, if that's where you're at right now, let me, let me just say this. We say this a lot here at Grace Church. If you're investigating Jesus, you are so welcome to be here. And we actually count it a very, very high honor that you would let us be a part of your journey as you investigate Christ. But for you, would you be open, open to the invitation that Jesus extends to you to have this level of relationship with him that's more than respectful, that's more than casual, that's more than polite, but that's marked by intimacy? Would you be open to that? And if God is stirring in your heart, would you pay attention to that, tune into that? Let God do the work he's doing in your heart. For some of you, if I asked you that question, you would tell me, my relationship with God is marked by respect. It's casual. It's lukewarm. It's not blazing hot. I'm not real passionate about knowing Jesus. I'm not anti-God, but it's just kind of in between. Some of you might say that. It's casual. I go to church, you know, every, when I can. And, uh, you know, I, I pray before meals. Usually the same prayer, but I pray the same Kind of prayer, you know, I respect God, so I'll throw, you know, 20 bucks in the basket when it goes by out of respect for God, and that's sort of, listen, here's what we need to understand. Your heavenly Father, my heavenly Father, is inviting us into a relationship that is marked by more than respect, that's marked simply more than just being a casual relationship that's marked by intimacy. But there is one thing he won't do. He will not make you 
God will not barge in because more than he wants to come in, he wants to be invited in. I asked, the, I asked the guys in the band to do something a little different today. I asked if, if maybe we could just take a couple minutes. I said, can you just give us a couple of minutes of just quiet reflection, maybe just some music, no lyrics, just some music. I said, I wanted to give everyone an opportunity to interact with God and to talk with him. And this is what I want to challenge you to do today. I want to challenge you to take, take our conversation, and I want you to talk to God about this. I want you to have, I guess for lack of a better term, have a DTR. What is this, God? What are we? And, and how is this working? Have the conversation with him. So for some of you, if God is working in your heart, some of you, I know right now, you're thinking, I want that. I want what you're talking about. I want that deeper relationship. I want that intimacy you're talking about. But honestly, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what it looks like to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Listen, here's my advice to you. If you want to know what it looks like to have an intimate relationship with Jesus, don't ask me. Don't ask me. Listen, ask him. If, if you wanted to be friends with me, who would be the best person to talk to? Would it, would it be my wife? I mean, she'd be great, but wouldn't it be better if you just talked to me? Listen, let's not, let's not do that thing that Eve and Satan did where we talk about God as if God were not right here with us right now. Talk to him. Ask him. If you want this level of relationship, if you sense that he's outside and he's knocking to come in, talk to him. Talk to him, to Jesus. See, Je Jeff said this last week, and I can't agree with him more. I can't give you three steps to intimacy with Jesus. That would defeat the purpose if I gave you three steps. That's not what intimacy is all about. It'd be like me saying, here's three steps to being a perfect husband or a perfect wife. It doesn't work that way. Because my job is not to explain to you what God is like. That's not my job. My job is to introduce you and say, God, connect with the people. Connect to the heart. The invitation is open to you. And so maybe for you, for the first time, take some time in this quiet reflection to pray to God and to talk to him. Speak to him. He's here. And he's present. And he stands outside of the door of your religion of your concepts, of your respectful, casual relationship. And he knocks. And he says, and if you be willing to let me in, then we can have this level of relationship that we were created to have. So take this time. might be the only time you get this week to think, to reflect, and to pray, and to be open to what it is that God is doing in your heart.